Well, thank you, Gary, for sharing your heart with, heart with us. And uh, you know, we're thankful for you and for your love for Christ and um, just your heart of uh, service to the church. I, I truly am thankful for Gary. Uh, he talked about us, and I'll just share that if you uh, have an opportunity to be his, you know, under his care and his care group or be ministered to him, ministered by him, you'd agree that pound for pound, Kerry uh, has uh, one of the biggest hearts at our church, and he, his love for Christ and love for the brethren is infectious, and it's truly a joy to serve Christ together. Thank you for that, and thank you always, uh, praise team this morning. So such a joy to uh, sing the gospel and to be reminded of, um, reminded of Christ and how through Christ we have uh, full acceptance. Um, by God, love how the blood of Christ, Christ who was crucified, it speaks on our behalf as justified before the throne of God. And we stand before uh, the, the behemoth seat and the, the, the white throne judgment, and God uh, evaluates us because of the Savior's blood. We are declared righteous, declared forgiven. And we're declared approved by God, tested and approved in every way. And uh, what a thrill to come together and to, uh, uh, to declare that through song and to preach the gospel to ourselves in that way. We've been talking for several months about shepherding our own hearts with the gospel and preaching the gospel to our own hearts. One of the best ways is through song. It's through, through singing these gospel-centered songs and reminding our hearts and bathing our minds the truths of Scripture. Well, if you have your Bibles, please open open to Second uh, Timothy chapter two. We're continuing our study in the first part of uh, Paul's final epistle to his beloved son Timothy, and we're God allows to so be the final sermon on this um, passage of Scripture. For me, the most difficult part of our study in this uh, in this letter, we are almost done. And uh, just by, by way of review, remind you that this is uh, Paul's final letter, written around AD 64, and this is a true prison epistle. He's in a Roman dungeon, chained as a criminal, expecting execution. Uh, by, by Roman guards very soon. And it is his final letter to his beloved son in the faith, his co-worker and partner in ministry, Timothy, a young man who is ministering, who is in over his head. And he is addressing him personally here in the second chapter. <clears throat> Though Paul understands and wants this letter read aloud in public to all the churches, here in chapter 2, he's addressing Timothy personally. Um, the first word in chapter 2, verse 1, is second person singular, you. And uh, it's, he is uh, connecting this passage with the previous passage, with the second word, which is un, Greek word un, for therefore. So in light of the previous passage, Paul is giving his current commands. The previous passage is all about the state of the church at that time, the Christian church. And um, 
It was a difficult time for the church. Uh, uncertainty loomed because of uh, the many defections that were occurring among the leadership. Many trustworthy, noted men who were known for their faithfulness and devotion to Christ were running away from Christ and going astray from the Lord and His uh, and His cross. He uh, names some of these men by name. In chapter 1, verse 15, he mentions Phygelus and Hermogenes, who have turned away from Paul. Later on in 4.10, he mentions Demas. Uh, In another epistle, was mentioned among the leaders of the churches, and yet he is found here to have deserted Paul and deserted Christ because he loved the world. He mentions others in chapter 2, verse 17, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have went astray from Christ, uh, not geographically, but theologically. They have declared that the resurrection has already taken place, that the new body has been given, uh, and yet they have not left the church, so they are upsetting the faith of many dear believers because of their false teaching and is spreading like gangrene. Um, this has shaken the church, uh, caused much disruption and discouragement, and undoubtedly this is why Paul is writing to Timothy, because it has um, shaken uh, Timothy's heart as well. It's causing him to waver in his own walk with Christ, and definitely his ministry as a pastor at the church at Ephesus. So Paul is writing to Timothy to, to strengthen him, to give him hope and encouragement and confidence. And so he begins with that directive in, in verse 1, with this important command, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Passive imperative. Timothy, all these things are happening around you. Remember God's grace. Grace that saved you and grace that is empowering you and will sustain you and the grace that is waiting for you every single day on our life here on earth. And be strengthened by it. Be empowered by it. And it is an infinite reservoir of grace. We are we stand by grace, not by works. It is by Christ's faithfulness that we, we live and serve, not by our faithfulness. Timothy, passive imperative. Be strengthened by this grace. And then because of these defectors, defections that are occurring, make sure that you are entrusting to reliable men, able men, uh, godly men who will teach others. Make sure you pass the torch down, pass the baton uh, for future generations of believers. And then starting in verse 3, we studied Paul calling Timothy to be a good soldier, a coloss. A noble, loyal, faithful, colossus, like kaleidoscope, where we get beautiful. Be a beautiful soldier of Christ Jesus. And he calls him to suffer as a good soldier. In chapter 1, verse 18, it was suffer for the gospel, and that's for all Christians. Here it's a unique suffering reserved for soldiers. Suffer as a pastor, someone who's called to full time ministry. And he uses three analogies, three metaphors, three word pictures to describe the pastoral ministry. Soldier, athlete, and farmer. And he makes statements of facts. Very important as we study this passage. Paul is not giving any commands here. He's just declaring 
present day realities and how they parallel the pastoral ministry. No soldier serving in active duty entangles himself in civilian business. So it's like, it's this way in, in the armed forces all over the world. You join the armed forces or they enlist you. You leave your former occupation behind. That's the way it is, Timothy. Likewise with pastoral ministry. You don't engage yourself in serving the church and have side business or side businesses going on at the same time. You singularly devote yourself to please the commanding enlisting officer. The second is athleo, uh, the Isthmian Games we spoke about last week. Any competitor goes into competing in these games, they devote themselves and they commit themselves to the rules and regulations of these games. And any violation meant hadakimas, disqualified. At the end, if you're victorious, you're given a wreath to commend you for your training and for your success and toward you as the victor of that particular sport. And a wreath was given to you. You got money, you got honor and fame and a parade at your hometown. That was taken away. All the award, the honor, acclaim was taken away if it was found that you had violated a single rule or regulation governing the games. And we spoke of that last week. Now, it's a joy to preach here at Cornerstone, particularly because uh, Cornerstone people listen to sermons. Right? You guys actually listen. A lot of churches, they don't listen. So the pastor can go up and say anything or nothing at all and just fill time. And people are just thinking about snacks and fellowship afterwards and playing flag football in the afternoon. So, you know, you don't have to worry about what you say or don't say in the pulpit. But Cornerstone's a little different. You guys actually listen and actually think. And, uh, you know, uh, and that's a joy. And a few of you mentioned, well, Pastor James, with a soldier, you emphasize so much about the pastoral ministry. Why, with the athlete, was it not emphasized? Why was it so much broader in terms of the Christian life rather than the soldier? And uh, the reason I didn't is because purely lack of time. If, you, if, if the elders gave me an hour and a half on Sunday to preach, I could uh, cover all my bases, but lack of time, I didn't cover that. And the, and the reason is this. Um, in the scriptures, there are certain instructions to particular people. And we have to do an extra application for the church that is, a, that is broad. Uh, for example, I gave that illustration about Paul and Timothy and the cloak. Later on in the epistle, Paul tells Timothy, bring the cloak when you come to Rome. That's a specific instruction for Timothy. And when I preach that in a few months, I'm going to make an extra step of applying it to the whole church. And the application is not for all of us to go to Rome and bring a jacket for Paul because he's not there anymore. He died 2,000 years ago. We're going to be very disappointed if we take that jacket right, and go there. No one's waiting for us. The application for us is um, uh, for us to meet other people's needs. Right? If your pastor's cold, give him a jacket. Right? <laughs> if, you're, you know, if somebody's in need, you help one another. In uh, the latter part of the Gospel of Matthew, Christ com- comes upon a fig tree. He does all these miracles. And right before the cross, he does something. He curses this fig tree and he says, never, never, may you never bear fruit again. And like, why is that, why did, why did he perform that miracle? And why is that included in the Gospel of Matthew? And many people preach that as, you need to bear fruit or Christ is going to curse us or 
were to go to our garden, and if there's any tree that doesn't bear fruit, we're to cut it down. Now, that's the illustration. In the historical context, Christ was condemning Israel for their lack of fruitfulness toward God. It was his final, it was his declaration of Israel being cut off as a chosen nation. And that fig tree was a picture of Israel. How they had leaves but no fruit. And Christ, as God's spokesperson, was declaring it without fruit and, and uh, uh, pronouncing judgment. That's the application. And to apply for all believers, we would apply it differently. So when we come upon such cases, we make that extra step. So for a soldier, it makes no sense for us if we just study it uh, as it applies to all Christians. We must study it as it applies to pastors and then apply it to the whole church. Now for the athlete, I skipped that step because the pastoral life and the Christian life, there are some distinctives, but there are also parallels. Distinctives in terms of our civilian pursuits, but parallels in terms of uh, not going against any rules and regulations for the Christian life. It applies for every Christian, it applies for every, every pastor. So it's not like pastors, we need to obey God's word, but Christians, you can disobey God's word. Right? Christ, pastors, we need to abide by um, the rules that govern the Christian race. And for Christians, it's okay. You guys can ignore them. You guys can neglect them, disobey them, violate these rules, and just run however you want. Whether you're a pastor or a Christian, direct parallel, direct application to both. So because of lack of time, I skipped over that step. And if you noticed that last week, you get extra credit. Now today, we go back to um, the soldier in the sense that what Paul is talking about relates directly, first and foremost, to pastors. Um, He used the soldier, he used the athlete, and now he uses uh, the metaphor, the analogy of a farmer. Verse 6. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Other versions say must. Other versions say should. The Greek word is they. It means must. The hardworking farmer gets the first share of the crops. Um, the hardworking is the Greek word kopiao. And uh, it, it speaks of a unique kind of hardworking. It is uh, extreme toil, intense labor. It is uh, such prolonged work that you're at the point of exhaustion. So this is talking about beyond just hard work. You're working all the time, all the seasons of the year, that you're at the point of exhaustion. Now, this was particularly difficult for me because, you know, what do I know about farming, right? I think I know one former farmer and that's Tom Furco, right? <laughs> that's the first part. I, I should have emailed you or called you because he grew up in a dairy farm in Pennsylvania, and and he grew up first, I know, teenage years working at a farm. So I thought I should interview him to get more insights on farming. So I know one farmer, and I watched some Little House in the Prairie episodes in my wife. <laughs> so my wife and I talked talked about like Charles and Laura Ingalls and their farming and how difficult it was. 
So that's the limited limit of my personal knowledge of farming. So what do you what do you do then? You have to like read books. That's what I did this week, right? I actually did research on farming. So I'm sure like many like like me, many of you have no personal like experience or knowledge of farming, so I'm gonna read some of my research to you. There we go. A little bit the dry information. No human activity is as prevalent in the Bible as farming. Agricultural pursuits are mentioned from the opening pages of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, it was so important that it was regulated by Mosaic law. It was so prevalent. The orderly system of using the land was governed by God himself. And our Lord often used um, agricultural uh, techniques or farming illustrations to expound on the kingdom of God. He talked about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed. He talked about wheat and tares, sowing seed and the harvest. And even the Apostle Paul regularly used this illustration of farming to explain to us spiritual truths about crops and sowing and watering and the harvest and having fruit. Um, For the New Testament readers, farming was common experience for everyone. Practically every family owned a piece of land in Israel. And most families worked a small farm on their own. And they had farm animals who lived with them, were considered part of the family. Uh, They regularly grew their own food. Uh, Wheat, barley, grapes, olives and figs and larger farms would sell them for profit. What was unique to Israel was that unlike Egypt and other Mesopotamian countries, Palestinian farmers were not dependent on irrigation to water their crops. They depended solely on water, uh, water from rain and also from morning dew. They uh, contended constantly with natural elements, fought with them uh, for their for their welfare, pests and warfare and their constant enemy was was drought, uh, famine. It was a, a year-long affair. Every season, whether winter, fall, summer, and spring, a farmer was engaged in the work of farming. There was no off-season. There was always planning. There was plowing the land. There was uh, determining what crops work best for this field because of the climate and the condition of the field. There was always working around rocks and and uh, thorns and thistles and and birds and predators that would steal the seed and and creating boundaries with rocks and and fences to to keep the animals out. And there was a constant watering and cultivating the land and caring for the animals and protecting the animals from the predators and ha- having them breed as well and caring for them from from disease. And then there was the work of harvesting where uh, there was a season, a few weeks, where you had to harvest the crops. And if, but if you didn't harvest it, it would spoil on, on the field. So you would hire just everyone you could, like friends, neighbors, day laborers, to come and harvest the crop. Once you harvested, you would have to separate the wheat and tares and you'd have to winnow the grain, the process of the chaff, blown away from the wind, leaving the grain in place to be consumed or sold, and they would burn the chaff at the end, 
And after that, you have maybe a few weeks to celebrate the great harvest, and it would start all over again, the whole process of farming. Um, It is arguably the most perfect metaphor for the Christian ministry. It is the most perfect metaphor uh, for my life. So people ask me once in a while, like, what do you do? Right? What, what is the pastor life like? What do you do during the week? So if you ask the, so I'll say, you know, go work in the farm, right? Or watch Little House in the Prairie. Um, you would ask a farmer, what do you, what did you do this week? It might not look like, a, look like much. Well, you, you know, you watered your field, you took care of your animals, or you took care of, uh, you know, you bought some seed. Um, but in the big picture, you see how exhausting a work farming is, and there is no end in sight. It's uh, four seasons work, morning till night, and uh, our Lord and uh, epistle writers used this agrarian illustration to depict uh, Christian ministry. Um, we talked about Christ, how he used these illustrations, even Paul, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9, talked about how all the servants, they're just servants of Christ. Apollos, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God gave the increase. And even in that illustration, it highlights um, the limitations of our work and the helplessness with which we work. We work, we toil, we labor, we sow the seed, we prepare the land, we water that seed. But we can't control, like the farmer, can't control the weather, and we can't control uh, the seed. We can't cause growth. We are utterly helpless. That's true for ourselves. Every Christian here, you need to understand um, the, the mind of a farmer because you can read the Bible to your bloom in the face, You can pray 24-7. You can read every Christian book. You can listen to every Christian sermon. But you cannot make yourself grow. It is an impossibility. Uh, The farmer trusts God for the harvest. Likewise, our growth is not by our works. You can do all, the farmer can do all these things perfectly. And at the end of the harvest season, have nothing to show for it. He has absolutely nothing to show for his efforts. Uh, likewise with us. Uh, we do all this, but we trust the Lord for our own growth. And as far as pastors, likewise, as elders, care group leaders as well, we work and we toil, we pray, we teach, we shepherd, we serve. And it, it is God who causes the growth. So that... Um, that idea of farming, the agrarian mindset is ingrained throughout the scriptures. And so Paul goes to it again uh, to t- teach Timothy by way of illustration an important truth. Now back to verse 6. I am tempted to like create a sermon here about not being lazy Right, being a hard worker, being a faithful shepherd, 
but it really only has one simple point. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have first share of the crops. Ah, It is the hard-working farmer. Um, It is a challenge for us to understand. Maybe our introduction helped a little bit how difficult the work it is to farm. Uh, There are three categories of working in the farm, three categories. One is soil work, animal work, and seasons work. Soil, animals, and seasons. First category is the farmer has to work the land. He has to assess the condition of the soil, plow the, plow the land, get it ready, sow that seed liberally, faithfully make sure it is watered. He needs to cultivate that harvest and, and, and harvest it when it's ready. He needs to winnow the grain and prep the soil for the next crop. Right? That in itself is a full-time job. Additionally, he has the work of shepherding the animals, caring for the animals. He needs to uh, feed the animals, clean them, uh, protect them, and breed them continually. That's a full-time job as well. The third job is the management of the farm. This is the big picture work. He needs to assess what crop would grow in this soil, in this climate, will be most profitable? How much seed do I need to prepare and purchase? How many workers do I hire for the work? And how many workers must I not hire where it will cut into my profits? He needs to uh, get the animals ready for plowing the field. He needs to purchase or prepare tools for farming. He needs to make sure all his workers have food and water and even housing. Uh, Requires much preparation. That alone is a full-time job. Altogether, it is a kopiao work. It is exhausting work. Uh, And if you fail at even one, uh, it's not just losing out on some profit. Your family's on the line. One devastating uh, uh, season without a harvest could very well mean your family will not eat. The idea here is not a backyard garden. It's not an idea of uh, going to Lowe's and buying some seed and weed killer and uh, planting a tomato garden in the backyard. Much more is at stake. Now, from here, it's a teaching opportunity to uh, help you understand um, uh, what pastors do and what we do here, what our roles are, and what your role is as part of the church. I I see here a teaching opportunity. I want to connect it to the three responsibilities of a farmer, 
to the three responsibilities of a pastor. Three responsibilities of a farmer, the three responsibilities of a pastor, and that's found in um, the three offices fulfilled by Jesus Christ during his incarnational ministry. Three offices fulfilled by Jesus Christ during his incarnational ministry. Our Lord, um, during his ministry, fulfill these three offices of king, prophet, and priest. This framework is uh, found often in the Reformed camp. How these three offices that God had used in the Old Testament to oversee his kingdom, he sent kings to govern over Israel. He sent prophets to declare his truth to the people. And he sent priests to provide sacrifice for his people for their sins. All these offices were fulfilled by Christ. And now pastors and elders and under-shepherds, as under-shepherds of Christ, we fulfilled those roles as well. Christ was the supreme king. All the kings in the Old Testament proved to be Greatly, uh, great disappointments. Whether it was uh, Saul or David or Solomon, they all failed. They failed uh, to model God's holiness and to be true and caring leaders of the nation of Israel. Jesus Christ is the true and just king. The book of Matthew 1.1, the gospel of Matthew is all about the kingship of Jesus. It begins with his ancestry as a son of David. His lineage shows that he is the rightful king of Israel. His works show that he is the rightful king and how he provides for his people. He has authority over disease, authority over demons, and authority even over death. His character is of a humble king. In Matthew 21, when he enters Jerusalem, he comes not on a white horse or in a kingly chariot. He comes lowly and humble on a donkey. He comes as a humble king. And at the end, he rises from his defeat, rises from the grave, declaring himself the eternal king, king of kings and the Lord of lords. His reign will be eternal. Second office is the prophet. All prophets of the Old and New Testament are second-class prophets compared to Jesus. They just spoke words given to them by the Father. But Jesus Christ was utterly unique. Hebrews 1, verse 3 He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of His nature. John 14.23, Philip said, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said, "Show, show us the Father. How can you say that, Philip? When you see me, you are seeing the Father. He fulfilled the prophetic office like none other. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. No one, not even Moses. Moses saw the fleeting of the fading glimpse of God as he passed by. 
No one has ever seen God except the God, the only, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ revealed God unlike any other prophet before and since because he knew God intimately. And thirdly, the priest, the true high priest. That's the argument of the book of Hebrews. How Jesus Christ uh, is a better high priest than the priest of the Old Testament because he can empathize with our weaknesses. He has been tempted in every way just as us. So when he prays for us, he is um, sharing that burden with us. He's better than the Old Testament priests because they sacrificed offerings every single day. But Jesus Christ doesn't sacrifice animals, sacrificing, giving blood of bulls and goats. He sacrificed himself once for all. Once for all. He is a priest, not of an earthly sanctuary, which is destroyed in AD 70, no longer exists. He is the high priest of a heavenly sanctuary, Hebrews 8. He is the mediator of a better covenant, a new covenant, a unilateral covenant that God made once for all. He is the better high priest because he is in the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. He's undefiled. And through him we have access to the Father. Finally, he is a priest forever who has been sworn in by an oath, not made by man. No one, you know, the high priests were given uh, in their, the Levitical tribe and they were assigned by each tribe to be uh, priests uh, for, the, for the temple. Jesus wasn't called by man. He was called by God himself. These three offices were used by God in the Old Testament to govern Israel. Jesus fulfilled all three offices during his incarnational ministry. And all pastors and elders who serve under Christ in the church, we fulfill those roles as we serve his church today and until his return. These offices give us insight into the identity and responsibilities of those who serve his church. We believe there are just two offices, elders and deacons. But elders slash pastors, they fulfill these functions, these roles, these responsibilities that were modeled by Jesus Christ. And again, I share this with you because it is a teaching opportunity for what it means to be a hardworking farmer, a hardworking pastor. What do we do? Share this with you so that you understand our roles, our work, our responsibilities, and you understand uh, the burdens we carry and the responsibilities we have in caring for Christ's church. So let's go through um, uh, these three offices and... uh, how um, elders and pastors fulfill them, the, the qualities, job descriptions, responsibilities, and even strengths and weaknesses uh, that come with these responsibilities. I think as we go through them, you'll have a better understanding. I, I, I share this as well to kind of create a new uh, vocabulary within our church. 
that we will speak in terms of kings, prophets, and priests as we talk about leadership in the church as well. So first of all, kings. Uh, the qualities, they're leaders. They're organizers. They're interested in infrastructure. They're focused on management, policies, goals, and pur- purposes. They are pastors, they're elders, but their strength, they're, uh, they gravitate towards these kind of, kinds of workings in the church. Needed work in the church as well. Their character qualities are they're strong leaders. They're visionaries. They're people that uh, move things and move people. They unify the church. They mobilize the church. They're very organized. They're men of faith and conviction. They're very disciplined. They're unique in that they get excited over administration. Right? So there's some of us like me who don't get excited about administration. Like I fall asleep in those meetings. These guys who are strength in, in, in the kingly role, they get excited about organizing. They like to build walls, love to build buildings. And so their responsibilities follow their strengths. Uh, they provide leadership, the programs. Um, they unite leaders. They, they, they help people to work together. They understand the vision and the reality of the work that is needed, and they are able to communicate it to the church. Uh, they, by their life and ministry, they inspire confidence and loyalty. And so their strengths are as follows. They're, they're wise, they're insightful, they're able communicators. They, they are big picture, uh, they have a big picture perspective, right? They don't lose the forest because they're focused on the tree. They are relational, charismatic, they know others and they know themselves. Uh, they're dependable, emotionally stable. They're clear and logical thinkers. Um, they have book smarts and they have street smarts. Those are the strengths, qualities, responsibilities of those who are, who have, who fulfill the role of kings in the church. Now, the likely weaknesses of a king, because they're so program oriented, um, they don't really uh, love people. Right? They don't really uh, care for people. You're talking to them, and they really don't make eye contact. They're really busy. And you can tell you're a project to them because they're all about figuring things out, giving answers, and fixing things. Oftentimes for a king, they, their weaknesses in their family in that their family is treated like a project. And so they're not really into caring for their family unless there's a crisis in the family. Um, they don't like priests because priests will find out later they're a little more disorganized. Right? They're, more, they're not big picture people. They are emotionally very engaged and somewhat emotionally unstable. So kings and priests do not get along. Kings are oftentimes impatient, proud. Um, They're spiritually weak. They're so program-minded that they lack prayer and they lack study of the scriptures. Uh, They're given to pragmatism, hyper-highly critical of people and, and things, oftentimes inconsiderate, Resistant to accountability, 
Uh, and uh, they kind of bulldoze over people who get in their way. They either steamroll over you or they marginalize you. If you, you get in the way of their plans, their goal, their vision, their, their purposes. Right. So the likely uh, traits of a church that are under just kings is that they're first-class Christianity. Everything is excellent, very organized, very structured, very program-oriented. But the negative traits of a church under kings is that they're theologically weak. They lack depth and substance. Maybe a lot of flash, but not a lot of weight. The second office is the prophet. This guy is a guy who loves books more than people. He loves theology. He loves to read. He he wants to study Greek and Hebrew and other languages to read theological books in their native native language. He's a a preacher, he's a teacher. Uh, He is... uh, seeks to live a radical lifestyle. Right? So the character qualities of a prophet, someone whose strength is as a prophet, is he knows the word, and he is uh, committed to uncom- not compromising on the word of God, either in theology or in life. Right? He moves people by his passion and conviction and knowledge of the word. He's devoted to prayer, and he wants to build schools and libraries. He gets excited at preaching and teaching. He loves to preach a long sermons. His responsibilities in the church are to guard the truth and doctrine in life. Preaching the word, teaching the word. He wants to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. He wants and seeks to model the truth in his own life. The likely strengths of a prophet is that he has a detailed, comprehensive knowledge of the word. He is courageous. He is a book lover, an avid reader. He has a, a natural curiosity about truth. He's very disciplined. He knows the world. He knows the culture. The likely weaknesses of, a, of someone who is strong as a prophet is that uh, his family is not well cared for, and the church is not very well cared for relationally because he's too into books. Right? He's too intensely devoted to the ministry of the word. He's prone to legalism. He doesn't like kings because kings are pragmatists. Right? All they care about is administration, logistics. He cares about the word. He's prone to having a black and white perspective on everything. Everything is truth and error. And he loves to debate. He wants to get into arguments and controversies. He lives for that. Uh, he kind of lives at an arm's distance from people. He's somewhat unsympathetic towards people who are weak. He doesn't understand. You study the Bible, you, you, you obey the Bible, and you live the Christian life. For people who struggle with the scriptures, he is unsympathetic. Uh, He feels threatened by priests because priests care for people. He himself struggles to really care for people. He struggles with being proud because of his knowledge, self-centered. The likely traits of a church under prophets, 
solid teaching, people grow in understanding the truth, people are excited about the word, people are equipped for works of ministry, the likely weaknesses, weakness, weak traits of a church and the prophets is that people are uh, very divisive, people have their own hobby horse theologically, people are hypercritical, hyper discerning, uh, intellectualism is rampant, pride and knowledge is ramp- rampant, and uh, tendency to become an unwelcoming, unloving church. The third and final office is of a priest. And this is, these are the men who uh, love and care for the people, saved and the lost. They are the heart guys. Right? They're always on the verge of crying. Right? They always like have water in their eyes. They have a big heart for people, Christians and non-Christians. They are patient with people. Right? They could talk to you for five hours and have strength for five more hours. They're wise counselors. They're always encouraging, always helping, always serving. They're relational. And they're anything but intimidating. The kings are intimidating. Right? Because they're so disciplined, organized. Right? They're so excellent. Prophets are intimidating because they know the word and they yell so loudly. Priests, man, they're not intimidating. Like, they love you and you love them. Right? Uh, they're devoted to intercessory prayer. They don't want to build libraries or build, they don't want to build schools. They want to build bridges. Right? Counseling centers. Right? And you guys get to get the picture, right? They're compassionate, gentle, patient. They, they get excited about people and serving Christians and reaching the lost. And so their role in the church is to, as pastors is to care for people, pray for people, to listen to them, to comfort them, empathize with their weaknesses. So when there's a weak person, the last person you just send is a king, right? Because they'll build a program around that weak person to get him out of that problem. Or send a prophet, he'll just yell at them for an hour and make him feel more miserable. When someone's weak, you send a priest who will listen, will cry together, hold hands and pray and give them hope with the gospel. Likely strengths of a good priest is that he's relational. Uh, He knows how to biblically care for people. He's tender-hearted, very patient. He has a servant's heart. Likely weaknesses of a poor priest. Um, we see this with Eli. His own family struggles to respect him because he pours himself out for others, for the lost and for Christians, that he neglects his own life and his own family. His life is disorganized, you know, his clothes don't match, he's kind of disheveled, right? His checkbook is not balanced, his room's a mess, right? He lacks discipline. He has a hard time relationally with uh, kings because kings just think of systems and structure. He's, he's proud that he's caring for people. They're just doing logistical work. Um, temptation is to be slow-paced, and uh, weak in theology. So likely traits of a church under priest is that it's a welcoming church. Right? The people know that the pastor or pastors care for them. 
But the negative trait is that people are loved, but they're poorly fed. Preaching is uh, awful. Preaching is very weak. And the church is disorganized. Nobody knows what's going on, but they know the pastor loves them. This is uh, the three offices that Christ fulfilled. And pastors and team ministry strive to fulfill these roles in caring for the church. Now, I believe what Paul is saying here is uh, the hardworking farmer is the guy who's fulfilling all three roles. He's exhausted, right? Because he's doing the kingly work, the prophetic work, and the priestly work. There is no off-season for him. Paul is not saying by way of analogy here that only they ought to be supported financially, but he's saying in terms of priority for the budget, it should go to the farmer who is working all seasons. When it's winter, he's planning. He's doing the logistics. He's figuring out the budget. He's hiring the workers. He's he's analyzing the soil. He's working during winter, right? He's caring for people, and he's also preaching the word. This farmer who is doing Kopiao ministry, priority of finances, of the church budget should go to him, and then the rest. There is uh, support in 1 Timothy 5.17. It's just one book over, maybe one page over for many of you. Let the elders who rule well, who are good kings, right? Episcopos there. Let the elders who are good kings be considered worthy of double honor. Right? Not just relational honor, but financial support. Especially those who labor, again, copiao in preaching and teaching, to their kings and their prophets. Right? They're laboring in that. They deserve the first uh, share of the crops. When the harvest comes, he gets the first percentage. and his, his needs are met. Now let me just close our time with some final thoughts. Right. Uh, I think Paul closes with this because one of the most serious threats to a pastoral life, you might be surprised to hear this, is... Uh, Laziness. Right? Uh, they asked Pastor MacArthur in his book, they interviewed him and we're discovering pastoral ministry. He said, What are the threats to a pastor, pastor to a pastor's life and ministry? And he said four things. Uh, he said, um, Area of personal purity. So we know many pastors have disqualified because of, of uh, indiscretion in this area, moral purity. Second is, uh, Poor judgment in building a ministry team. Right? Not guarding the fence in terms of leadership. Third threat, which is somewhat surprising, is said, was a non-supportive wife. And I would agree. Uh, the most important uh, person in the pastor's life is his wife. This is what Pastor MacArthur said. Particularly a non-supportive wife who constantly nags and battles the pastor as he tries to be faithful and loyal to the work in the church, 
can be a threat to his life and ministry. If she is negative on the church or the people in it, or if she is spiritually out of sorts or materialistic, if she is self-indulgent or a little too controlling, she will cease to be that support for that for her husband that he desperately needs to serve his people with joy. A fully supportive, loving, trusting wife who will be honest, but who will stand with her husband to the very end will be a great help to her husband who is a pastor. The fourth and final one, the thread is, as I said, is laziness. Laziness. He talked about how pastors, all pastors, have this temptation because our work is so different. Our work is so insular and public, so private and public, and so internal and spiritual that we can easily become just external performers with very little hard work in prayer and the Word behind the scenes. And he and many pastors have talked about how uh, it's a shock when they run across uh, pastors who disqualified themselves out of purity or a non-supportive wife or lack of unity and leadership, but they're not surprised when they run across pastors who succumb to laziness. Laziness. It is a life-destroying trait, not just for pastors, but for all Christians. So this is where it applies to all of us. You see uh, laziness as a threat, not just to your Christian life, not just to your ministry, but let me just talk, talk to everyone as it applies to all Christians. Laziness is a threat to your life. Threat to your life. The book of Proverbs, one of the main characters in the book of Proverbs is this uh, tragic comedic figure of the sluggard. He has a sheer animal-like laziness. He is uh, so anchored to his bed that it's his hinge. All he does is go from left to right and he cannot get out of bed because he loves to sleep. And he makes up preposterous excuses to legitimize his laziness. He makes up things like, there's a lion outside. That's why I am sleeping. He, uh, uh, he's known for beginning things. Right? And when people are ask him, how long till you finish this? When will you finish? He doesn't like to give definitive answers. Proverbs 6, 9, and 10. He's always a little more sleep, a little more slumber. Let me rest my hands a little bit. His life is dominated by procrastination. Therefore, he simply will not finish things. He begins many things, but that impulse quickly dies. And his life is littered with half-finished books, half-finished tasks, half-finished pursuits. So much so, his meal goes cold on him. He can't finish his food. 
and therefore he will not face things. He rationalizes his own laziness, and therefore he is restless. He is destructive to himself, to his family, and even to his uh, employers. He is like a vinegar to those who send him. Right? He is an irritant to those who work with him, those who employ him. The Proverbs is filled on warning against laziness. Paul is talking here in chapter 2 of Timothy for pastors. But Proverbs, and it applies to all of us, is a threat not just to our Christian lives, but it is a threat to our lives. It will destroy our lives, devastate our lives. And this is a little sleep, a little slumber, and destruction will overcome him overnight. Overnight. Our temptation is uh, out of uh, pride and ego, out of shame, you know, to uh, respond by making commitments to not be lazy right now. Right? I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we're all procrastinators. We all struggle with laziness. And our heart response right now is, uh, I'm going to resolve myself. I fear calamity. I fear being found out. I fear my life coming apart. I'm going to commit myself to, to be disciplined. No, that's, uh, that's legalism because you're striving to look good before God, man, but not before God. If we are motivated out of pride or out of fear to cease from laziness and to be disciplined, we are none better than the Pharisees. We are like whitewashed tombs, white on the outside, but full of dead men's bones. We are like cleaning the cup on the outside, but inside we're still filthy. The gospel response must be, the gospel response must be confession of our sins. Acknowledging honestly and truthfully before God and before those we have sinned against out of our laziness to confess our sins and call it exactly what it is and to go to God for help, to rely on grace, to trust in Christ, just like the farmer understanding I could do everything, but there could be no harvest. I will have nothing to show for it. The way to be excellent farmers in God's field is to work diligently, but in our hearts, to be resting in the gospel, to be trusting in Christ and hoping in Him, where our resolution is not to do certain things, to get a certain outcome, but God, I will do all these things, but my confidence, my trust, my hope is in You alone. Let us seek to be approved before God first. And as we do so, God will over time produce a spirit, produce the fruit of self-control in our lives. Produce the fruit of discipline, of diligence, of being hard workers all to his glory. Final thought, and I promise I'm done. Um, This issue, I think this point is clear in chapter 2, verse 6. The hardworking farmer ought to to get a first share of the crops. 
but it's a difficult point for us to study and for me to preach. Because, um, you know, money is a difficult and sensitive issue for pastors. It is such a weird topic for pastors to think through and to understand and to relate with fellow pastors and with the church. I was talking to one pastor and he was telling me how his children have special sandals that conform to their feet. And so you use it for several weeks or months and then naturally it conforms to their specific, like, I don't know, configuration of their feet. And they're very expensive. But she makes sure, the pastor's wife, to tell everyone in the church that they were given as a gift that they didn't buy it for themselves. Because they were afraid if people thought that they had bought these shoes for their kids, people would struggle and stumble and be judgmental and critical. So she has to make sure when their kids wear those sandals, everyone knows they were a gift. We didn't buy them for ourselves. Another pastor bought a used Suburban, right? So for here, you buy a used Suburban, you don't have to explain yourself to anyone. But in his church, he felt awkward going to the church on the first Sunday after buying that vehicle. And he had to tell everyone it was uh, financed by their father-in-law. Right? They didn't buy it with any cash that they had for themselves. Um, I mean, I feel the pressure. I mean, all pastors feel the pressure. I was talking to a one, one pastor who had worked as a layperson for, for several, about a year. And he said, James, it was so different getting paid from my work rather than as a pastor. Because when you get work paid by a pastor, that money, because of our legalism, you feel guilty. You feel constrained. But when you work and get paid, you feel the liberty to use it as faith leads you. I mean, I understand exactly what he was saying. I think for so many of us, I don't know, we have this... I mean, I, Sir and I were talking about driving here. She grew up as a pastor's, pastor's kid. I grew up in a Korean church. So our mindset was pastors must be poor, right? They must live according to their needs, not their wants. We believe that. And yet it's so hard to live accordingly because, I mean, I don't need three ties, I don't need three pairs of basketball shoes, right? I think I do, but I don't. I don't need three pairs. I don't need like four. I can live on one T-shirt. We so if, we, if it's about right, I could. If it's based on need, where do you go? I think that is so ingrained in the human heart. Paul, after he talks about being courageous and not devoted to civilian pursuits, the soldier and not violating rules and regulations as an athlete, he ends this text by bringing forth this farmer. And in the Greek, it is, it is a must. The hard-working farmer must have the first share of the crops. He says that, and he tells Timothy, think about this for yourself, and for all future pastors. Um, just like he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 7, the laborer is worthy of his wages, worthy of his reward. I say this again, I said this a few weeks ago, but Cornerstone has been very generous to me and my family. 
they're generous to our pastors. But why are we generous? Because we believe our pastors are hardworking. Like, you know, they might not be preaching every Sunday. You might say, hey, what does that guy do? Right? He doesn't, I don't see him up front. James is preaching all the time. Sometimes James presides and leads praise and collects the offering. Right? <laughs> He's working hard. What is that guy doing? But you see, there's kings, there's prophets and priests. We all work, some in public, some behind the scene, all for the building up of the church. And they are worthy of the first share because they are hardworking. That is the mindset of the elders when we, were gen- when we are generous to our pastors. Hope that all made sense. That didn't. Talk to your care group's leaders this week <laughs> and have them explain it. Let's pray. Well, God, times like this, I ask for grace. I ask for.